Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Durham, North Carolina to discuss the challenge of emergency abortion care. Um, yep, so my name's uh, Andrea McDonald. I'm one of the second-year pulmonary fellows uh, here at Duke University. Um, I guess a little about me is I'm from North Carolina. I've been at Duke for uh, undergrad and med school, went out to California for a little bit for my residency, and then, and then came back here um, and was really excited to be kind of involved in this whole process uh, with Deep. Yeah, and that's a pleasure to have the podcast with us, Dr. McDonald. Um, and then we also have Deep. Hi, yes, I'm Deepshika Shana. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and a pulmonary and critical care attending physician um, at Duke University. Yeah, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us as well. Um, so we're gonna be discussing a really important topic uh, today. Um, you both co-authored uh, with Haley Gershengon and Viewpoint in JAMA that was published in November, 2022, entitled The Challenge of Emergency Abortion Care following the Dobbs ruling. And if there's one topic that seems to divide the American public, that is abortion care. However, um, there are emergency abortions and patients do still need to have life-saving care. So I'm really glad that you went and wrote this article. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, So uh, Dr. Shana, maybe you could go ahead and explain to our audience, what is emergency abortion care and why is it so necessary? Sure thing. Um, and before I say that, maybe I'll say one thing in response to your question, or in response to your comment that, you know, this is one issue that divides the American public. Hopefully by the end of this, we can convince you and the listeners that emergency abortion care is not a political issue, um, really, that there's very broad public support for this, um, and it is a medical issue. Um, so just a little bit about emergency abortion care. This refers to abortions that are necessary to protect the health or life of the pregnant person. And broadly speaking, such care can be necessary for two reasons. First, the pregnant person may experience a medical complication related to the pregnancy, for example, life-threatening bleeding due to problems with the placenta that can only be treated by terminating the pregnancy. Second, the pregnant person may have a serious illness unrelated to the pregnancy, such as a newly diagnosed malignancy or pulmonary hypertension, and termination of pregnancy may be required in these situations to either stabilize that chronic condition or receive life-saving treatment for the serious illness. So those are very important uh, reasons um, that folks would consider um, abortion. You mentioned life-threatening bleeding, uh, cancer, um, and some that you've mentioned, the, the, the severe illness or sickness. Um, in the article, you go through why it is necessary for folks to consider this as a, a, a component of their care. Maybe you could give us a few more details, Deep. Yeah, so, you know, if we look at life-threatening bleeding due to problems with the placenta, for example, um, particularly for pregnancies that are, um, you know, considered non-viable, the only treatment in that situation since the um, 
since the threat to life of the, for the mother um, is arising directly from a complication of the pregnancy, the only treatment in that circumstance would be to terminate the pregnancy in order to promote the health and really in that case, the life of the mother. Um, and the other examples that I mentioned, for example, pulmonary hypertension, you know, particularly for those who um, have severe pulmonary hypertension, we know that pregnancy induces really significant physiologic changes in the human body, um, a lot of um, cardiovascular changes, and those may not be tolerated um, by patients who have severe pulmonary hypertension. Um, so in that case, again, it would be necessary terminate the pregnancy to protect the health of the mother. Um, in other cases, there might be medications that are needed to treat serious illnesses. For example, um, if a patient develops um, you know, a newly diagnosed malignancy during pregnancy and needs to receive chemotherapy, which would be um, harmful to the fetus, um, again, termination of the pregnancy would be necessary in order to pursue um, life-saving definitive treatment of the malignancy. Thank you for the clarification. And in this situation, um, the priority is focusing on the mom and making sure um, that, that she is that she does well. So, Angie, I want to turn to you. Um, there's been a lot of history associated with abortion care. Maybe for the benefit of our audience, you can give us important background information on two important rulings: um, the Roe versus Wade, and then uh, Dobbs versus Jackson. Uh, Women Health Organization. So maybe the Roe versus Wade first. Oh, I'm sure. So Roe versus Wade um, was kind of a landmark uh, Supreme Court ruling in 1973, which essentially articulated constitutional protections for the right to end a pregnancy. Um, it struck down criminal laws that were banning abortions uh, based on the fact that they unconstitutionally infringed upon the fundamental right to privacy. Um, and it also kind of recognized uh, in its discussion that fetuses are not persons and that at no point in the pregnancy does the government's interest in the potential life of a fetus outweigh its interest in the health and life of a pregnant person. Um, so it, it did, you know, Roe did leave a lot of room for limits to still be put um, on abortion access, uh, short of actual criminal prosecution for people seeking abortion care. And that's kind of the area that we've seen a lot of the, the hurdles that have been put in place um, via the laws uh, that have limited abortion in, in the decades since then. Um, and in a lot of ways, like in the years since then, uh, the ability to get an abortion is kind of increasingly dependent on the ability to kind of surmount these legal obstacles that are left in that space in the law. Um, but just like for context of what Roe versus Wade did, um, since 73, abortion rates had increased after, after Roe to a peak in the 1980s and then overall decreased to an all-time low in 2017, at which point they kind of started to uptick again. So it's not like they've just infinitely increased since that time. Um, and then uh, I guess I can go ahead and talk about the Dobbs decision as well, um, which was obviously June 4th, 2022. Um, and there was a leaked decision a little bit before that. So I think we kind of knew it was coming at that point. Um, but the Dobbs decision was essentially the first time in history um, that the Supreme Court actually took away a fundamental right. Um, and they abandoned essentially nearly 50 years of precedent since Roe and ruled that there was not a constitutional right to an abortion, um, which really kicked the regulations back to the states and empowered a lot of states to enact laws that 
would previously have been negated by the precedent of um, of Roe versus Wade. So Andrew, how does the uh, Dobbs versus Jackson ruling affect emergency abortion care now? Um, <laughs> yeah, essentially, um, it's made it it's made it confusing. I think is the uh, the summary and it and more difficult. But uh, overturning Roe doesn't make abortion illegal just at the drop of a hat. Um, it just sends everything back to the discretion of states. And one of the other viewpoints in in this issue of JAMA. Um, the one that was on the legal risks and ethical dilemmas actually kind of outlines the current legal landscape. So it's worth looking at um, for kind of a concise summary, but essentially um, 13 states had immediate trigger laws that were invoked. And those were laws that were meant to go in place immediately after Roe was overturned um, with kind of various limitations. And some of those kind of were immediately held on injunction and other ones went into place right away. Um, and then over the next few months, other states kind of began to pass new laws. So Indiana became the first state to pass a brand new law um, two months after the Dobbs decision, although that one is also currently under injunction. So if you kind of look at the landscape as of last month, um, at least 13 states have total bans. I think it's one state, Georgia, has a near total ban that's limited at six weeks. And then there's um, several other states um, that have restrictions of some sort. Um, those first 14 states we were talking about um, account for almost 20 million women of reproductive age that are kind of living in states where abortion services are not available or severely limited. And the prediction is I think that like 26 states will have passed some sort of very intensive ban within one year of the Dobbs decision. So over the next six months or so. It's complicated though, because there's a handful of states, like uh, I think it's eight states where the laws um, are being held on injunction either because they were older laws or newer laws um, that kind of abortion advocates have put um, lawsuits in place kind of saying that like the state constitutions may still uphold the right to privacy, et cetera. So there's, it's complicated like state by state that part of the laws might be under injunction or waiting for hearings. And it's kind of difficult to tell sometimes what's being enforced or not. So it's made it definitely a little bit um, nebulous uh, what the rules are in a particular area. And then in terms of emergency abortion care in particular, um, I think the other thing is that some states have really adopted fairly intensive laws for enforcement policies that don't have ex exceptions, like the common exceptions being rape or in incest or the health of the health of the mother, which I think we'll talk about later is pretty nebulous area. Um, but less than 10 states have have exceptions for rape or incest and, you know, up to nine states, according to kind of one of those other JAMA viewpoints, um, up to nine states have adopted policies that don't grant explicit exceptions for um, risk to the pregnant person's physical health. Um, and so kind of one example of this was what happened in Idaho, where they um, passed a law with absolutely no exceptions for the life of the mother. And, you know, when all the EMTALA stuff, which we're going to talk about, I think a little bit later, um, came up, you know, the federal government sued them. And so part of that law is under injection, but not the other part. So it becomes a little bit difficult kind of to know which part of the law you're operating, operating under. Um, and then another complicating factor is that some states have included criminal charges for providers who perform the procedure. So Wisconsin had uh, put forth a law that made 
performing the procedure of felony and that like everything else is kind of under the process of litigation and then Oklahoma has joined Texas in allowing civilians to bring civil suits against people who aid and abet. Um, and we had already seen from Texas after S SB8 for Dobbs that this kind of weighs heavily into, into people's decisions, whether or not they're gonna kind of help perform these procedures in this nebulous area. So I think the, the summary is that um, it's made it a lot more complicated about exactly you know, what is allowed and where and um, and it's changing constantly with kind of all the lawsuits and everything that are still underway. Yeah, I think you've given us a very good overview, Andrea and Deep. And um, to, to summarize this viewpoint, uh, the emergency abortion care was possible uh, and allowed in states uh, because of um, you know, federal law. Um, patients were able to receive um, emergency abortions for life-threatening bleeds, pulmonary hypertension, to receive therapies for cancer. And with the passing of the Dobbs law, um, that service is no longer available in certain states. And it definitely raises very important issues uh, about what we as Americans consider maternal rights, um, what are state versus federal rules and their rights, and also um, the uh, very important physician-patient relationship um, uh, that, that we'll probably discuss later in this podcast. So, Deep, let's turn to uh, Imtala. So, on July 11, 2022, Imtala was invoked. What was that, and uh, what is its intent? Sure. So, Imtala stands for the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, um, and it's actually quite old federal legislation that was enacted by the US Congress in 1986. Um, and the original intent of that was to ensure access to emergency medical care, regardless of a patient's ability to pay for such care, their citizenship status, or any other um, sociodemographic factors. So the law applies to all hospitals that receive Medicare payments, which um, essentially encompasses all US hospitals. There's very few um, hospitals that are exempt from this. And shortly after the Dobbs ruling, as Andrea mentioned, on June 24th, the Department of Health and Human Services invoked EMTALA on July 11th to affirm that participating hospitals must also provide emergency abortion care, even if um, there are conflicting state laws. Um, so that patchwork system um, that we were just describing that individual states may or may not um, promote access to emergency abortion care. The federal government was saying that, you know, there's this pre-existing um, federal legislation that ensures access to emergency medical care and emergency abortion care would be included within that. Um, so I'll just read you um, a brief ex excerpt that we had also included in our article um, about the exact um, letter of the law. Um, so DHHS said, if a physician believes that a pregnant patient presenting at an emergency department is experiencing an emergency medical condition and that abortion is the stabilizing treatment, the physician must provide that treatment. When a state law prohibits abortion, that state law is preempted. So, you know, it may seem that after Impala was invoked, now there, um, now that we now we've secured access to emergency abortion care, but um, in reality, there remain really two main barriers um, to patient-centered emergency abortion care. The first is similar to what Andrea was describing with the um, you know, state-by-state -state legislation. There are also ongoing legal challenges from state attorneys general to determine whether EMTELA does in fact supersede 
law. Um, and in Texas, um, an, an injunction was issued by um, a federal judge to prohibit um, the federal government from enforcing EMTALA in, in Texas until additional litigation can occur. Um, so in some states, we're already seeing that um, the federal government may not have the authority to invoke EMTALA um, and to sort of supersede existing state laws. And the second complication is that even if EMTALA stands, the language in EMTALA that defines medical emergency is very vague which poses a major challenge for medical decision-making in critical situations. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it, it is a pretty nebulous um, a statement. And maybe you could comment on that deep for us. You know, what do we define as a medical emergency? Um, there are the situations where um, the fetus is uh, not viable. Um, it may have anencephaly, um, it, it will die. Um, within a few hours of being born, um, and yet this uh, the, the Dobbs ruling would, would say that women would continue that pregnancy until birth, even though um, you know 10, 15 weeks. It's a known fact um, that the baby will die or that she will experience complications from that pregnancy. Uh, would that fall under the emergency abortion care? It's unclear, you know, even though, as you described, um, clinically speaking, medically speaking, I think in our minds, um, that clearly um, is a situation where an emergency and, a, and a, a medically necessary abortion should be performed, but under the law, that's not clear. Um, so, and this is not a hypothetical concern. We've, you know, see the, seen this play out in Texas, for example, which has had restrictions um, to abortion even predating Dubs. So they had the Senate Bill 8 um, dating back to September of 2021. So there's um, a lot of data, including um, a New England Journal perspective that was published um, over the summer um, that detailed interviews with um, maternal fetal medicine physicians and other um, critical care providers where they described clinical scenarios such as, you know, rupture of membranes before fetal viability, which as you described is a situation that is not viable for the fetus and is highly likely to progress to sepsis for the mother. Um, but physicians described that even in those situations, it was unclear when they could invoke um, a medical emergency and offer an abortion. So, you know, is it permissible in that scenario to anticipate sepsis? and intervene with an abortion before the mother becomes critically ill, or is it necessary to wait until she develops sepsis or perhaps even septic shock um, conditions that we know have a mortality rate of up to 40%. Um, further complicating matters, many pregnant patients are young and healthy, um, and we know that such patients can sort of compensate for severe physiologic derangement before it becomes clear that they are critically ill. Um, so not only is defining an emergency um, complicated, but additionally, such emergencies may not be evident um, in these patients because they're able to cope with um, you know, the derangements that occur. Um, so basically what ends up happening is in the current state, physicians have repeatedly described that they feel that they are forced to wait while organ damage and risk of death accumulates until they can really feel confident intervening. Um, and as critical for care physicians, you know, this is completely antithetical to how we approach any other critical illness. Early intervention and prevention of critical illness is always key because we know that ICU care is not a panacea. Right? If we're waiting until pregnant patients become critically ill, 
before we feel safe intervening, then essentially as a society, we are acknowledging that it is acceptable for some pregnant patients to die. And even for those who survive, it's acceptable for them to experience the long-term physical and psychological impairments that we know are so common after critical illness. Yeah, I think that's a really important argument that you make, Deep. Um, we as critical care physicians would not allow critical illness to progress unchecked. We would want to intervene early, uh, decisively, uh, to minimize any damage to where we're having to perform uh, emergency care where it's delayed and morbidity is pretty high. is not something that we would want um, for our wives, our daughters, our sisters, um, our friends. Um, so Deep, maybe you could comment for us. Um, I think Andrea did a pretty good job um, when she spoke earlier. How has this become really complicated and challenging? And if you want, you could maybe go through what uh, possible solutions are available, and then I'll pull Andrea into the discussion. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to respond to um, that first part um, to get us started. So, you know, what why has medical decision-making changed? Why is it that physicians feel compelled um, to wait and to delay intervention? And as we described in our article, the key barrier really is that typically, right, before um, the Dobbs decision, typically we make decisions that are patient-centered. So um, the main focus in these situations would be how do we um, best manage medical risk to this pregnant patient? Now, the situation is that we have to weigh a trade-off between the medical risk to the pregnant patient and legal risk to ourselves. Um, so as Andrea had described in many states, physicians are actually at risk for criminal prosecution um, if, um, you know, after the fact, sort of in retrospect, um, there is disagreement about whether they truly intervened in an emergency and whether the abortion was justified. Um, so there is an opportunity for those decisions to be adjudicated after the fact, and then there's a risk for physicians to be criminally prosecuted. And so that fundamentally changes how we make medical decisions, because now what happens is that instead of offering evidence-based abortion care in, in anticipation of an emergency, um, we're being compelled to wait until sufficient medical risk has accumulated, which um, you know, sort of minimizes the legal risk, um, and then it's acceptable to intervene. Andrea, this is a very complicated, very challenging topic. What solutions have your team come up with that uh, we should uh, pay attention to? Um, sure. So I guess, you know, to start off, there are no solutions um, to this particular, to this particular issue. It's obviously pretty complicated. Um, but uh, one thing that we had talked about was um, just hospitals and hospital systems being somewhat proactive about putting systems in place to help physicians navigate the gray areas um, in kind of a standardized and efficient manner so that care isn't delayed and that physicians don't feel like they're taking on undue kind of personal liability. Um, what those systems look like will probably vary from place to place because state laws vary from place to place and the amount of liability that a system is gonna take on, a health system is gonna take on is also gonna vary from place to place. Um, but I think that what we felt like was important was that physicians don't, aren't just kind of left alone 
making all these decisions without kind of any support or guidance from the places that they work, um, essentially because that's gonna that's gonna lead to kind of physician stress, physician burnout, and then it also introduces a lot more space for kind of individual kind of implicit bias and potential worsening of, of healthcare disparities and a whole lot of other problems. So it's one thing that we had talked about was whether or not there was room for any sort of decision-making committee. And it's, it's unclear what that would look like. You obviously don't want like a big risk management committee that's gonna take a day to convene and days to talk about these decisions because they have to be made quickly, but whether or not that's a second physician and a risk management person that you can call or someone who's on the ethics committee who kind of helps you walk through those decisions in real time so that people aren't kind of completely alone and ideally there would be some sort of standardized approach and again, that would be kind of individual to every place in, in every particular um, healthcare system. But I think it's probably important that some sort of guidance be put in place everywhere ahead of time so that you're not waiting till these emergencies present themselves and then nobody knows what kind of the plan of action is. Um, so that's, that's kind of one thing that we talked about um, in whatever form is appropriate at, at every different institution. Um, and then I think one of the other things that we had talked about really came out of reflections from the COVID pandemic, um, talking about whether or not there was potential for transfer networks and kind of load sharing in this, um, in this space. And I think that, um, you know, load sharing during COVID was kind of a proof of concept confirmation that if one area is inundated or isn't able to offer services, maybe there are other places that would be able to help if logistical obstacles could be removed. Um, and so the idea that we were talking about was whether or not there could be creation of potential local networks where patients could be transferred from places where care isn't available to places where it is. And that's obviously a complicated thing to set up because someone is gonna have to bear the cost for those transfers. Um, so there would be buy-in from insurance companies or healthcare organizations, and it's a little unclear what that would look like. Um, but it is kind of a potential solution. It is also, it also introduces kind of potential space for healthcare disparities um, for patients who may not be as well insured or may not be at kind of well-resourced facilities. Um, but it still is kind of one, one thing to explore. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the other things that we had talked about um, was just continuing to use our position as kind of healthcare providers and organizations of healthcare providers to continue to advocate for what we think is, you know, best for our patients. So, you know, so quickly, so many of the different um, kind of organiz physician organizations, the AMA, the American Association of Medical Colleges, ATS, the American College of Surgeons, everybody like very quickly released statements about how this is kind of an intrusion of decision-making on the patient-physician relationship and infringement of evidence-based practices. Um, and so I think, it's, I think it's great how kind of quickly everybody mobilized. Um, one of the other viewpoints in this JAMA issue had a quote from the, the AMA Code of Ethics about, you know, in cases where law laws might mandate conduct that is ethically unacceptable, physicians may need to work to change the law. And I thought that was kind of a nice summary of, of the fact that physicians are very central, obviously, to this issue and just kind of staying active in, in promoting uh, as much advocacy as we can for, for patients and continuing to try and push, push the conversation forward so that it's not just being made 
you know, by people who are very peripheral to healthcare and not associated at all. Um, and then on the non-emergency abortion, you know, front, there's obviously tons of organizations who are working on ensuring access to medication abortions and self-managed abortions and contraception and risk reduction strategies to try and prevent critical illness. But it's it's unlikely, obviously, that the that these issues won't continue to to keep coming up. No, they definitely will continue to occur, and the, the, these challenges will need to be met. Deep, um, what else can you offer us? Um, there is obviously the concern that um, states may penalize uh, both physicians and patients, and that can incur considerable debt, especially for patients who um, not only have to go through a life-threatening uh, pregnancy, um, have to perform an emergency abortion, and then are saddled with uh, financial debt uh, that they won't be able to cover. Maybe you could comment on that and any other uh, proposed solutions um, th that are available. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I think, echo um, what Andrea was saying about the role of advocacy and legislation here. Um, you know, the most definitive solution to this, of course, will be um, a legislative solution. And I'll also go back to my original point, which is I really do not think that this is a political issue, right? People can have widely varying views on abortion, but what we're speaking about is when the health or life of a pregnant person is threatened, should they have access to good medical care? And I think that there's very broad consensus that the answer to that is yes. Um, and we're in a week where we've just come out of, um, you know, where we recently had an election. And we've seen in every single state where this issue has been put to voters that there's been really broad support against, um, you know, completely restrictive, uh, completely restricting access to abortion. And that's even in um, very conservative states. And so that's why I say that, you know, to me, this is not, um, this is not a political issue. What we're really talking about is when people are, um, when their health is in danger, when their life is in danger, should they be able to access care that promotes their health and life? Um, should their physicians be able to act in a way that really um, is patient-centered and does what's best for them? And I think there's broad consensus that um, both of those things should be true. And we should not be falsely reassured by the fact that many laws have um, exceptions for medical emergency because, you know, what we're really saying is that there is a disconnect between the form and the function of the law. So even when there are exceptions for medical emergencies, the law purports to preserve access to health and life-sustaining treatments. But in reality, this risk of criminal or civil prosecution means that medical decision-making is changing and treatments are being delayed, which is really dangerous for patients as you're um, you know, importantly pointing out that the key people who are going to be disadvantaged here are pregnant people. Um, and good laws should promote good behavior. Um, instead, the current le legal landscape um, is promoting delayed medical treatment in emergency situations at the risk of criminal or civil prosecution, which is unacceptable and sets, you know, honestly, a really dangerous precedent. If today the legal system can compel us to withhold evidence-based care from seriously ill pregnant patients, we have to consider which disempowered group of patients will be next. Um, and we've already seen um, movement in this area with multiple states 
um, promoting bills that will um, criminalize uh, gender affirming treatment, right? So this, um, I think, is a really dangerous precedent. Um, it's not something um, that the American public supports. It's certainly not something um, that physicians and physician organizations support. And so I think the key here is, you know, how do we use our collective voice and our medical expertise to, um, to make that statement to the public and to legislators so that we can have um, a durable um, legislative solution to this. Um, so that might be sort of um, a high bar and maybe um, a really optimistic take on it, but um, I completely agree with Andrea that, you know, we um, have a, have a, a say in this, we have um, our, our, our physician organizations um, have a platform and we should use those, um, you know, first and foremost to protect our patients, but secondly, also to protect our profession. This is a really serious infringement on the way that we practice medicine and that cannot be allowed to stand. Deep and Anja, you have both very well articulated um, your viewpoint. Um, and used your medical expertise and conviction to share with our audience um, about the challenge of emergency abortion following uh, the Dobbs ruling. I definitely want to encourage our uh, listeners to read the article. It was published in JAMA, uh, the November 1st, 2022 edition. Um, it provides a lot of insights and backgrounds and uh, a definite uh, must-read uh, to reflect on what's happening in the country. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, thank you, Deep. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dominique, for having us. A big thank you to Drs. McDonald and Ashana, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society. <laughs>